Will you guys turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23? I'm not going to read the whole chapter today. We're just going to read uh, four verses beginning in verse 15. This is God's word. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a uh, famous passage in Hebrews chapter 11 that marks and describes a number of major characters in the Bible. It begins sort of at the beginning. It talks about Abraham. It moves on to Moses and so on. And with each character, it stops with them and it describes the way that faith has played itself out in their life. Cute, uh, clever biblical scholars call this the hall of faith. But in 31 verses, the writer hasn't gotten very far. In fact, he's only up to talking about the woman Rahab. They're only in the book of Numbers. And so if he's going to make any progress, he has to really pick up the pace, and he does so. And he rattles off a few other names, but he doesn't take the time to describe the actual things that these people did to contribute to the kind of movement of salvation history. He doesn't do that. And then, after that, he acknowledges that time fails him. But there's many, many other men and women that have lived lives of faith, that have walked a life of faith, that persevered amidst terrible trials. And many of these men and women, their legacies are never going to be recorded. They're never going to be remembered. They're not going to be in the hall of faith in the scriptures. They're not going to be remembered maybe even by Christian history. They're more or less their legacies are going to be forgotten. And the writer of Hebrews has this chilling maybe but wonderful way of describing those men and women. And he says, these are people of whom the world is not worthy. They live these lives of such incredible faith, of such remarkable perseverance, of such devotion, but they're going to be forgotten. And the world that surrounded those people in their day, the world of our day, this world from beginning to end, that world will never be worthy of these men and women. I think Jonathan, Saul's son, is a man of whom the world is not worthy. It wasn't worthy of him then, and it isn't worthy of him now. And it it never will be until Jesus returns and creates the new heavens and the new earth. Jonathan is, this passage that we're looking at with Jonathan today, this is more or less the last time that you ever even hear Jonathan's name. Now you're going to know that Jonathan dies in a battle with the Philistines in the very last chapter of 1 Samuel. But when you come to that section, 
Jonathan's name is just going to be placed alongside a bunch of his brothers, and it's just going to be vaguely acknowledged that he died. We're going to know about his death in a very non-sentimentalized sort of way. And then after that, honestly, the Bible probably only talks about him one other time. He never comes up again. But what's amazing about that is, if it wasn't for Jonathan, David, this integral figure of the Scriptures, this figure that we will never forget because his name comes up over and over again, if it wasn't for Jonathan, David would be dead. And if David dies then the whole history, all of salvation history, is going to get rocked cattywampus on its axis. And things are going to change desperately. If Jonathan, everything changes if Jonathan tears his soul from David. Everything changes if Jonathan breaks his covenant, or if Jonathan withdraws his protection, or if he fails to point David to the source of all things, all of life, which is God. What I want to do this morning... We've talked about Jonathan a number of different times, but I don't want to forget him. I want to zero in just on these few verses because of all of those things that I just mentioned. And I want us to talk about friendship again. Though we've done it a few times, I want to look at it again. And I want us to see three characteristics of Jonathan and David's friendship. But we're going to talk about those three characteristics. But when we talk about them, what we're not doing is just kind of gauging and assuming a method for friendship. The genius, it seems to me, of the friendship between David and Jonathan is not necessarily that it gives us ways to be friends, ways to show our affection. It's it's not that it does anything like that. The genius of the relationship of David and Jonathan is that it restores gravity to the notion of friendship. Before it does anything else, it restores gravity to, this no, to the idea and the notion of friendship, more than giving us a method. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about a method, but that's the main point. If you and I want to have to be, maybe, to be a friend like Jonathan to somebody else, which we all should, the first thing that we need to do is to restore gravity to the notion of friendship. If you want to have a friend like Jonathan, which we all should, The way to draw somebody like that is to restore gravity to the very notion of friendship. It seems to me that one of the problems with reading this, the thing that makes it so moving to read the story of these two men and their relationship with one another, is that when we think of friendship, something flimsy and flaky comes into our minds, right? I mean, we automatically sort of begin to remember all the times that somebody's been flaky to us, or we begin to remember all the times that we've been flaky to somebody else, or we're guilty because we know about the predisposition that we have to be flaky. All of that we have to banish out of our mind and restore a biblical foundation to this notion of friendship. And when you do that, it's going to become a serious thing, not flimsy and not flaky. So the the three things that we'll say is friendship is covenantal, explain what I mean by that. Friendship is security. So the first one would be like the essence of friendship. The second one is like the result of friendship. And then finally, friendship is theological, which is the end of friendship, by which I mean purpose and result, not conclusion. So first, friendship is covenantal. In, in, uh, when you read the story of David and Jonathan, as it comes up, as they appear in the narrative of 1 Samuel together, 
the word covenant is used three times, which on the surface is odd, right? Because you don't, we don't think of making covenants over and over and over with somebody. We think of God makes a covenant with his people. That's everlasting. It goes on forever and ever. But with David and Jonathan, it's like they're addicted to making covenants with each other. Whenever they see each other, they want to make a covenant with each other. So they do that. But what does that mean? I mean, what is, what is a covenant in the Bible? Well, usually we just simply say a covenant's like a, uh, a contract, right? I don't know, you guys, maybe, maybe you don't know the Bob Dylan song, Covenant Woman, from his later Christian years. And the, the first line is just, or the chorus just says, Covenant Woman got a contract with the Lord, okay? And you hear that. I mean, that's generally the way that we think about that. But in the scriptures, a covenant isn't just simply a contract. It's not like a business agreement where both parties are kind of cold and mutually profitable. A covenant in the scriptures is very different. This is a warm agreement. And it's a warm agreement that can potentially expose one party to great cost and hardship for the sake of the other. See the opposite of that between that and a business partnership where you'd only enter into the partnership if both people found the agreement to be profitable. In the covenant, scriptures don't guarantee that at all. And most often, those agreements become the source of, of pain and frustration for one person for the sake of the other. That's, of course, the case in when God's covenant with humanity climaxes in him sending his son. But it's also the case for Jonathan. Jonathan covenanted with David at great expense to himself. Jonathan and David, naturally speaking, do not have the same interests. They have opposite interests, humanly speaking, right? The covenant or the kingdom should have been Jonathan's. It didn't have to be David's. He's Saul's son. And it must have been even more a temptation for Jonathan because Jonathan had to know that many of the gifts that David had, Jonathan had them. The leadership skills that David had, Jonathan exhibits them. The wisdom that David had that Saul, Jonathan's father, never had, Jonathan's got that too. It could have been his. So that had to have been an enormous temptation for him, something that he fought over and over and over again. But he surrenders his rights. He doesn't make use of his right to become king, but he endures all things rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of the kingdom of Israel. So what is covenant? So that's a covenant friendship there, right? What does that look like for us? Well, I think at the very least we've got to begin to talk about friendship in the church as something that is virtually vowed. I'm not suggesting a ceremony for friends or anything like that. But what I do believe is that the, what's exhibited here between David and Jonathan is something that wasn't going to be dissolved upon the whims or changes of one of their interests or hobbies or whatever. The, the, the relationship was established. It was, uh, you could say it was objective. It existed outside of their personal feelings or their interest or whatever. The relationship was a done deal. Now, 
we don't, that doesn't, that doesn't ring true. I mean, at least in my life, I won't speak for you. But very few of us have relationships outside of maybe our marriages and the way that we think about our families. Outside of those things, very few of us have relationships that we would think of with that level of commitment. But that's the way that the Bible speaks about them. As long, for us, as long as the person on the other side of the table has a reservoir sort of fully stocked with interesting things for us to milk, we can stay friends. But when that reservoir starts to diminish and they become less interesting to us or they annoyed us five times in a row or they said something weird in front of our girlfriend or whatever, things begin to change. But the Bible doesn't think about relationships at all that way. Biblical friendship is objective and willing to endure seasons of frustration and difficulty. Secondly, I think friendship is is security. And this is what is sort of the result of friendship. In the pro, when you think about God's providence and the way that God orders history, in the providence of God, history turns on the acts of human beings and friendship. This intimate gift that God has given us directs the course of history as much as anything. It's able to do that, I believe, because friendship protects the decree of God in people's lives from the devil. Let me explain what I mean by that. But we see this in Jonathan's life over and over again, right? Jonathan looks at David. He sees the way that David's life is playing out. He can watch it and witness it. And he sees God's decree playing out in the fact that David is being, against all odds, David is being delivered over and over and over again. And so Jonathan must have had a sense that that's the will that God had for David. He says this in our passage, right? You will become king. He just knew it. He was sure that that was the direction God was moving David. He knew that. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jonathan knew that about David. But he knew that that God wasn't going to do that in David's life in an invisible way. God was going to do that in David's life through the work of Jonathan. Here's what I mean. David Gentino said this uh, last week. When we think about the way that God works in our life, in the Christian life, and the way that God motivates us, the way that he changes the things that we desire, all of us would want kind of like a, snappy, let's let that happen miraculously. I don't want to go through the grind of seeing my desires change. I want stones to be turned into bread everywhere I go, right? Because God, you know, authors all of life, and I wish I could do that kind of thing. But David said, you see in the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness that God doesn't call us to that kind of carnival Christianity. We're not jumping off pinnacles of temples so that angels can rush in and keep our feet from being dashed against the rock, right? That's not the way that God works. It's the same with friendship. Jonathan had, to, had the faith to believe that God was going to save David, but he was going to work his will through Jonathan. I think this is absolutely critical for the church at large. If it takes a village to raise a child, then surely it takes a church to raise a Christian. 
And the church that builds a Christian will be a church that's knit together with tons of little pockets of friends. Friendship brings and is security. For David, that security that Jonathan brought, that was temporary security, right? Delivered him from the hand of his father. For us, security is bigger. It's eternal. Of course, it's God that's working in your life. You're never going to be, if you're, if you know the Lord, if you're in Christ, no one can ever snatch you from your Father's hands. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing will ever do that. God's going to keep you believing. But chances are, He's going to do that through very ordinary means. He's going to do that through the people that are around you. That's why we make a big deal about saying the confession of faith every week. It's not just so you can rehearse doctrine. It's because doubt in the Christian life is so utterly pervasive. And for you to have a brother and a sister next to you saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that matters. It helps me to hear David say that next to me because doubt, because faith ebbs and flows in my life. And there's times where the light of Christ shines bright. And there's times where hid is a basket that shades and distorts that life. I like, I trust God's going to keep me believing. But generally, He's kept me believing through very ordinary people saying very ordinary things. God's going to keep us believing, and He'll do that. But He's going to do that through friendship. The purpose of friendship, the result of friendship, is your participation in the wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of days. Now, if that doesn't restore gravity to friendship, I don't know what does. Finally, Friendship is theological, and this is the end, the kind of culmination of friendship. Um, I heard, I've heard past people say this about this passage before, and it makes a lot of sense to me, and it helps me. If you read, if you go back and read the passage that we read, you'll read that uh, the writer says, David arose, or Jonathan arose and went to Horesh to strengthen David's hand in God. And I think that articulates a paradox that exists in friendship. Friendship, of course, says, I need you. I mean, I do. I need you. I need you. And I'm not who I am. I'm not who I ought to be. I'm not up to snuff without you in my life. But Christian friendship says that, but then it says, but what I need from you is not for you to create codependency in my life. It's not for you to teach me to depend on you, but for you to force me to look at the one who's the source of life and life abundant. God, I need you to strengthen my hand, but I need you to strengthen my hand in God. Right? I need to be more wise. I'm a foolish person. And so I need more wisdom. But what I need from you is not for you to tell me that you've got the wisdom that I need, but I need you to point me to the one who is omniscient, who has all wisdom, one of whom Isaiah says, do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He doesn't become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. I'm weak and I need strength because I'm totally weak. But what I need from you as my friend is not for you to teach me to depend on your strength, but for you to point me to the one that is omnipotent. 
The one of whom Job says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? I'm doubtful. I am. And God's work in the world, it confuses me. And when I look at the world and I see what's going on, I don't know where to turn, and I feel like I I don't think rightly. And I need you because you're my friend. But what I need from you is for you to point me to the providence of God that never ends, that never goes away, to remind me that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will in the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward or stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The end of Christian friendship is for us to strengthen each other's hands in God to desire the flourishing of our friends, even at great expense and cost to ourselves. When we talk about the body of Christ, I think this is very important. That's not a metaphor. That's not just some kind of illustration that Paul picked up. It's a real thing. Christ reaches into our lives through each other, and His gospel ministers to us through the ministry of the church and the ministry of our friends. Jesus is in heaven, body and soul, but heaven and earth overlap and interlock. The heavens are open for Jesus' life through His Spirit to reach us through each other. I'm going to close with a story. This is a story I've told a lot of times. You may have heard it, heard me tell it before. David's heard it a gazillion times. They had to hear it again in the first service. Anna, my wife's heard it. I can't tell you how many times. But I think it's a good story when it comes to friendship. I, uh, when I was in college, I had a professor And my professor, when he was in college, had this unique experience. He had a famous Bible uh, scholar come to his college, and he was going to lecture at uh, my teacher's college, when my teacher was in college. The scholar's name is F.F. Bruce. F.F. Bruce was a kind of famous biblical scholar. And so he comes and this, gets, this is where the story gets confusing. My professor's professor, when he was in college, was so nervous about the arrival of this famous biblical scholar, F.F. F. Bruce. He's so nervous about him coming because he knew that F.F. F. Bruce wouldn't just lecture. He'd also do like a Q&A. And he didn't trust his silly, immature undergraduates to ask appropriate questions during this Q&A, and so he does the unthinkable. He takes note cards, and he writes a note card for every single student in the class, and he says, the question that you see on the note card, that's the only question you're allowed to ask. Do not ask any of your own questions to to F.F. Bruce, because you'll ask something stupid, right? So F.F. Bruce comes, and sure enough, he finishes his lecture, and boom, it's time for the Q&A. And F.F. Bruce opens it up. Now, I'm sure F.F. Bruce thought the questions would be coming in droves, you know. But because the, the, the teacher had made such a big deal about it, the whole thing had become socially cumbersome and scary for the students. And so all of them just kind of sat there like a deer in the headlights, not knowing what to ask. Well, the silence becomes painful enough, and so one young student takes his note card, and he sort of raises his hand, and F.F. Bruce says, yes, yes, young man, or whatever, 
And he reads the question that his teacher had given him to read. And F.F. Bruce says, I'm sorry, I don't understand that question at all. And so the question that the teacher had written didn't didn't even track with F.F. Bruce. So the moment becomes even more painful, and the silence extends and extends until finally one braver young man pitches his note card and asks the brilliant question that only someone that age could ask, and it was this. Dr. Bruce, if you met the Apostle Paul today on the streets of Chicago, what do you think you would be the most impressed with him about or the most surprised with him by? And F.F. Bruce says, that's a great question. And he thought for a minute and he said, I think I would be the most surprised and impressed with the fact that the Apostle Paul was a man of many friends. Now that's strange. That was F.F. Bruce's answer? This man who's devoted his life to knowing Paul backwards and forwards? He could have said something elegant about the Trinity. He could have said something brilliant about Paul's construction of the doctrine of justification by faith. He could have spoken about Paul's magnificent missionary zeal. He could have said any of those things. But he says this ordinary, boring statement about Paul being a man of many friends. And it's silly until you read Romans chapter 16. Because after 15 chapters of Paul doing all the eloquent, elegant thing, he takes the time to greet 60 some odd people as friends. But here's the twist. And here's the thing that I think you've got to take a step further for that story to matter. I don't think F.F. Bruce thought that he would be impressed by that with the Apostle Paul simply because Paul was like jovial and gregarious. I think he knew that he should be impressed, he would be impressed with that by the Apostle Paul because of the deep pragmatism in that decision. Because Paul only had one passion, right? Paul had one passion in his life. And he tells us what what it was in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrections. And resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That was Paul's passion. But for that to be your passion, God's not doing that in you alone. It's not going to happen by yourself. And I think F.F. F. Bruce knew that Paul knew for any of that to happen, he was going to have to be a man of many friends. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love. We thank you for this day that you've called a Sabbath, a day of rest. And I pray that this day would truly be that for each of us in here. Would you give us time 
to spend with our family and with our friends, and would you begin to refresh us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your spirit that fills us and causes us and motivates us to live lives that look more like Jesus's. In your name we pray. Amen.